Hello, college coaches. Before I get into the podcast today, I'd encourage all of you to fill out the most recently updated version of the health index. You can find this on the uh, We Are College Tennis website under the coaches resources page. You can also find it in the most recent version of the ITA coaches newsletter, uh, education newsletter that you received on August 21st. So it's very important. We all get a good sense of where our programs are at at this moment in time, some areas we can improve on. And if you do receive a low score on this index, please do not hesitate to contact me at the ITA to see if I can help in any manner. So with that, uh, I'll give you a quick introduction of our podcast guest today, Jeff McDonald. Jeff is the former head women's coach, recently turned assistant coach at Vanderbilt. It'll probably take several podcasting hours to learn all we could from Jeff McDonald. He's coached at LSU, Duke, and spent the last 26 years as the head women's coach at Vanderbilt. He's won a lot of college dual matches and an NCAA team title, and has also seen several of his players go on to success on the WTA tour. He has long been considered one of the brightest and most interesting coaches we have in the college game and always has some interesting insights every time I speak with him. In this episode, we cover what coaches should consider when moving from one head coaching position to another, his views on player development and the skills the next generation of college coaches will need to be successful. This conversation took place before he changed roles with longtime assistant coach Leaky Subanis. This type of role change may seem surprising to some, but those that know Jeff well know that he looks at things a little differently than many of the rest of us. So with that, I bring you Jeff McDonald. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jeff McDonald, thanks so much for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, this is great. Um, I'm looking forward to, to learning from you here over over the next hour or so. Obviously, you've you've had a, a long, distinguished career, and and hopefully uh, many more decades uh, to come. But you, you started your career at at LSU. You moved on to Duke, and now you've spent the last 26 uh-huh. years at, at Vandy. Um, but why why did it make sense for you to move on from some of those uh, you know pretty great programs in, in LSU and yeah. Duke? There, those are major institutions great tennis programs why uh why did you decide to, to move on and, and can you kind of take us through your decision making process at that time sure um you know i actually loved lsu and i've been extremely fortunate in the institutions i've gotten to uh to work for um i you know you're you're in many ways where you end up coaching kind of determines a little bit the altitude you can fly at and i've been at you know two SEC schools and an ACC school and, and again, wonderful places. Um, LSU, there, there, there was, you know, some of it was financial. Some of it was what was best for my family in terms of um, opportunities for, for us and for the kids educationally and growing up. And mm-hmm. I loved South Louisiana. I just um, uh, was quite drawn to Duke. It was, it was, um, right around the time they were coach K was winning back to back national championships. And, um, again, I'd been out on the recruiting trail and I, I thought, gosh, if I could recruit at a place like Duke, you know, that would really, that would be an interesting challenge. And while I loved LSU and when Duke presented itself, I, I, um, you know, took the offer and learned a lot when I was there. Um, it was, we, we had some really good teams. It was, uh, there was no indoors there at the time. We were using kind of a basketball court. Um, and when Vanderbilt, I was not necessarily looking for a job. I just sort of decided to put a line in the water and see. And when I came over here, I saw the potential of the school, um, Southeastern Conference, great academics, great city, and somewhat untapped. And uh, I was drawn by the challenge. Okay. So, so what factors do you think coaches should consider when, when moving from one program to another? That's a really good question. I think about that a lot. And I look at other sports and almost see, you know, the decisions people make and, and wonder why they do. For example, why does Mark Fuse stay at Gonzaga? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great fit. He's figured out his niche. He's figured out it really works for, for him. And, 
you know, then you look at, say, Brad Stevens. Why did he leave Butler to go to the Boston Celtics? You know, so I'll look at other sports and, and assess. I think a lot of it is make sure it fits you and what you want. And uh, can you make a good living there? Are there good camp opportunities? Is it a, um, what's the spirit of the place? Are they going to kind of welcome you and support you? Or are you, is, is tennis, you know, um, not supported that well? Um, and again, does it fit your life? You know, don't, it isn't just, we're not just jobs. We, you know, we also have to make sure the quality of our lives are good. And, uh, mm -hmm. I think that should be factored into it a lot. Very good. Yeah. So when you, you moved on to Vandy, then you, you, you know, Vanderbilt had, had a, a nice team, a solid team, shall we say, but, but uh -huh. pr pretty soon you went to, you know, challenging consistently for, for SEC and, and NCA titles. So what qualities and skill set did you bring to the table that facilitated this progression? Mm. Um, you know, I learned a lot at Duke because we were, uh, those teams were very good. I inherited an incredible team from Jane Pryor who, did it, who built that program up to the top. And I learned a lot. Okay, this is what Final Four is like. And this is, mm. this is what goes on in a dual match at a really high level when you're playing Florida, um, when you're playing Georgia. You know, I, I learned, wow, this is a very high level. And this is what's expected and demanded. And some of it was... You know, this is how you manage really elite players. Um, you know, they might need a rest here, or they might need, you know, we might make might want to make sure this is this is kept kind of fun and we take some pressure off. Mm -hmm. And I think that made a lot of mistakes in those years that I that helped me a lot as I um, was building the program here. Mm. Um, coming here, there were some really good kids who were already here, and I was very lucky. I had a player transfer from Duke with me. Kim Schiff, mm -hmm. who incredible work ethic, pre-med, she's now an emergency room physician in Minneapolis. Um, and she kind of lifted the whole program because they saw she was studying at a really high level and she was coming in every morning to work extra with me. Um, and that's something I've done everywhere I've, I've been. I've enjoyed the individual work getting on the court mm -hmm. with players. And that was, uh, that was a big part of what, what I did right when I got here. Right, right. So, so you talked about yeah your your time on the court with players, and and it's very obvious to, to any coach that that knows you and, and seen you in action that you love player development. You think deeply about uh -huh. this topic. So, so why why college tennis? Like, why not stay in the private sector and work with up and coming juniors, or maybe work with uh -huh. pro players? What 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 was it about the college game that that captured your imagination and has kept you in it so long? You know, um, that's a that's a good question. I've worked with juniors throughout uh, throughout my life. Um, and last summer, I was out with Astra Sharma from Rolling Girls through the U.S. Open, so I got to see the Pro Tour. Mm -hmm. And there are wonderful aspects to junior development, and the Pro Tour was was amazing to you know be practicing at Wimbledon or Rolling Garros and two courts over Serena, and there's Andy Murray walking by, and <laughs> pretty amazing. Um, and very educational. I think the best, the, to me, college tennis is, is, is just the best. It's a, uh, you're competing, you're at these great institutions, um, you're with young people at a really important time in their lives. Uh, um, the competition's fantastic. The format of, you know, the doubles point followed by the singles mm -hmm. and being able to, to kind of manage all that complexity at once, you know, what you keeping your eye on three doubles matches and then six singles is, is pretty amazing. Mm. We had a sports psychologist come talk to all the coaches at Vanderbilt one time. And she was, I think she was from the university of Iowa, but she came in and she, she stopped for a second. She said, who are the tennis coaches here? And my colleague and I raised our hands <laughs> and she said, to, she turned to everybody and she said, do you have any idea how many things they managed from a psychological and emotional and a tactical standpoint when they play a dual match. Mm. I've really never thought of it. I mean, I thought about it, but I've never heard anyone kind of describe it that way. And, uh, she, you know, she's right. I mean, if you think of your, your on court four and somehow you're managing in your mind, what's going on on the second court mm -hmm. and you're aware of all these scores and you're making decisions of where to be, what to say, it's, it's a, 
it's an incredible experience. And one way I gauge experiences, am I conscious of time passing? Mm. When I'm in a school match, I'm, I mean, it, I'm totally in a flow state. Right. Almost every match, and, I, and that's that's a pretty special place. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely miss that from from my coaching days for sure. Yeah. Uh, might yeah. be the only thing I miss, Jeff. But um, <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, I mean, what what are some of the elements then of your program that have remained consistent throughout your entire career and and would go with you, say, wherever you coached for however long you coach? Sure. Um, when I was at LSU, one of the things I've always done, really, whatever and wherever I've been is I, I try to find people who are really, really good and I pick their brains. So when I got to LSU, they were number one in the country in both men's and women's track and field. And I befriended the staff. I just hung out with them and, mm-hmm. you know, went for lunch and uh, picked their brains. And when I first started coaching, um, I think I was trying to be sort of an authority figure and really tough and um, in charge and, and all that. And, as I got to this one guy, Keith Connor, who was a bronze medalist in the triple jump in 1984, great, we became great friends and still are. And he said to me, he goes, why, why are you coaching in this way when it's clear to me when we hang out, you're a very different person? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you should coach who you are. So I relaxed and I started to understand these young women I was coaching at LSU. I didn't need to be this, you know, hard ass disciplinarian. Cause that's not my nature. And I began to coach more authentically who I am. And I, and, and I, in other words, I relaxed and I began to just build relationships and I began to, you know, be willing to not know everything, just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, work with a player and say, what do you think? And how did that feel? And a little more of an open relationship. And I, I, I think that's been a, something I have loved about coaching is the relationships you build with young people. And mm-hmm. uh, again, sort of being in process with them instead of I'm the, the expert know-it-all, just kind of like, hey, I'm trying to figure this out too, rather mm-hmm. than, you know, and then, and then real more of a partnership than I know everything I'm going to sort of tell you. It's more, it became more uh, a real partnership. Right. So you said your, your track and field friend um, made that comment to you. So, so were you able yeah. to flip a switch and, and start applying that? Or, or was this something that, that took time and, and you've kind of honed over the years? You know, it was really, I, I did a couple of, you know, he suggested a couple of things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he was once you shorten up practice and tell them they're doing a good job and let them go. I go, really? <laughs> and, and, um, you know, I began to watch some of their workouts. And again, they, they, they were dealing with Olympians in a college setting. Right. And it was relaxed. It was smart work. It looked like fun. And they stopped. Early. You know, it wasn't. And I said, well, do you ever do this? They go, we would never work that hard. But, but I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I mean, I'm, we work hard. But yeah. It was more about intelligent work and making it. Uh, making the training fun and understanding there's nothing wrong with music on sometimes or laughing. And uh, I just learned a lot from them. And then, you know, one day I was walking along with Keith. He said, do you ever just give them a day off out of nowhere? Mm-hmm. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> we can't do that. And uh, he said, try it. And, you know, we had a really good practice. They worked hard. And I said, take tomorrow off, do whatever you want to do. Take a nap, study, hang out, do something you want to do, but we're going to take a day off. I'll see you Thursday. Mm-hmm. And it was revelatory. <laughs> you know, I, they, they, it, it, you build a trust where they realize you're not going to work them into the ground. You're going to see them as people who need to take a nap now and then, or maybe they want to, maybe they want to go to a bunch of office hours. Who knows? But, mm-hmm. um, so I learned, I, I was able to do it pretty quickly, Dave. I was able to yeah. see the wisdom of what he was saying and almost reflect back on, my, on what would I like? Mm-hmm. I would like to close to follow me as a human being and, and uh, push me, but also every now and then, so take a day off. 
Right. Yeah. So, so where do you think your initial um, kind of coaching methodology? Wh- where did that come from? Was that that based on your experiences as a player and and kind of your your coach athlete relationship, or um, had you n- just not been thinking about it as deeply up until that point and just felt like the pressure to to coach in a certain way? Um. Yeah, I think I, I when I first got into it, I kind of thought, gosh, I, I guess I have to be like this. Mm-hmm. And that lasted about a month or six weeks, and then I changed quickly. <laughs> um, and I was a pretty self-taught tennis player, and, and I did a lot of, I mean, I had people help me. I had, you know, I did, did work on certain things, but a lot of it was internally driven by me. And, um, I did, I approached coaching the same way. I just began to try to learn, um, what can I do here? And I began to read any, I'd read from a lot of different disciplines like business. Mm-hmm. I'd read about management. I'd read about psychology. I'd read about psychotherapy. I'd look, I'd, I'd learn about family systems therapy, you know, look, look at families and understand stuff. Mm. Um, and I just began to, to try uh, to kind of think of each player and what, where they were. It was interesting to me, almost like who are they and what, what do they need and how can I, you know, be with them as a coach and help them get a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always thought that tennis and college tennis especially is, is there to teach you about a whole bunch of other stuff, how mm-hmm. to live, how to be ethics, you know, work ethic, but also, um, let's try to be excellent. Let's try to, you know, figure out, you know, how to help you get to be the best you can be. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, took stuff from any source I, I could find to get better. Mm. So, so what are maybe some of the ideas? So, so you're, you're learning a huge amount. You're looking for, for, um, you know, kind of wisdom in, in all these different areas. What, what are some maybe changes that you made to your program that you thought initially could make a significant difference, but then you ended up discarding after a short while and, and how do you decide what to discard and what to keep? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, I've coached with Aliki now for 15 years and known her for 20 and uh, Aliki Sabanos mm-hmm. and she, she would laugh. I'm the no, the amount, the number of things I have bought sometimes <laughs> with my own money, like let's try that. Mm-hmm. And it's in a closet somewhere in the center center. <laughs> for 10 minutes. You know, uh, like I bought, I shouldn't name the product, but I bought mm-hmm. this kind of backboard one time and I was convinced yeah. This is it. Yeah. And we spent like two minutes on it and everyone gave me grief for a month. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I'm sort of like, you know, PT Barnum, you know, knew what he was talking. I'm sort of the suckers born every minute. I'll, I buy, I've bought, you know, let's get that DVD set and listen to it. And then you go, nah, it isn't. And yeah. That so, but I, but I hope springs eternal. So I, I, I still do it, but mm-hmm. everyone, and everyone saw something sticks. So, uh-huh. um, I'm good at figuring out, ah, this is stupid, and he just blew one hundred and forty nine ninety five. Like I bought all the Tony Robbins stuff. I get up in the middle of the night when I was first coaching, and I'd buy that stuff. And yeah, it, it's good, but I, I would think, you know, the team would really better. And then I realized they, they're nineteen and twenty, and they would. They don't want to hear this stuff yet. Right. So. Right. Yeah. No, it's, I, I'm laughing because I'm kind of the same way. So, uh, yeah, the amount of stuff that, that gets dumped on the side, but, but at least we're yeah. trying. Um, so, yeah, and exactly. like, like yeah. you said, every, every so often something does stick and, and, and makes, uh, makes, uh, you know, uh, an impact on the program. So maybe exactly. what, what are some of those things you, you wish you would maybe apply to your program sooner than you did and, and end up maybe having a bigger impact than you thought? they they initially would you know um your your fellow irishman david thornton and i worked together <laughs> for, for a few years and david's a, just a fascinating guy and a few years ago when aliki was having her first baby he came on and was the assistant while she was on maternity leave and uh he was doing a lot of work on sort of the unconscious mind the subconscious mind and 
he said, you know, let, let read this book. So I read it and I thought, you know, there's something to this. And we did a writing exercise with the team in, in 2014 where we talked to them. We wanted them to, to see themselves winning an SEC title and an NCAA title. Mm. And then we, so we did, they, and I, I thought, all right, I'm going to present this to them. I'm going to say, I read this book. We're going to, we're going to do this exercise. And I had no idea how it would go. I thought either they're going to roll their eyes and say, here's another incredibly <laughs> thing coach is having us do. Um, anyway, long story short, the book was saying the way to communicate to the subconscious mind is to is sensory detail. So we did seeing, hearing, and feeling. Um, seeing can be seeing yourself playing, seeing yourself holding a trophy, you know, seeing almost like a movie. Well, they wrote for between an hour and a half and two hours. Wow. I mean, they had notebooks and they just, they went after it. I couldn't believe it. Um, and I, we kept that up and I wish I had discovered that concept earlier. Hmm. Um, Astrid does a good bit of that, of kind of writing, hmm. uh, herself. And I know I, I've read that Andrescu does it. I think it's a form of creative visualization that, uh, that Bianca Andrescu does. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, the power of the mind fascinates. I mean, that to me is yeah. something I, I really try to teach, teach that and talk about it a lot. Um, and I wish I'd discovered a little earlier or had the courage to just sort of do more of that when I met with teams and players. Because mm -hmm. uh, it really, it really, you know, we reap some pretty, pretty good dividends out of, out of that exercise. Yeah, very good. So, so how do you, how does that look now in your program? Is that something you give them time at the beginning of the, the season to do? Is it something you encourage them to do daily or how, how do you help them with that process? Um, we do it. How to put this? I, I coach a lot by feel. So I don't plan out, you know, teamworks is a nightmare for me. You know, the whole idea of like having to mm -hmm. plan out the whole, <laughs> it could be, you know, it's Saturday morning and the men's team is asked if they can go another hour. So go get your notebooks. Let's go, let's go off. And then we, I, I read an article about how Google does meetings and I began to copy it. And the idea is you make sure everyone speaks, right. you make sure, your number 10 player who's a walk-on has just as much of a voice as your star All-American. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we'll, we'll often do that. And then I'll say, look, let, let's do some writing on that. And um, I try to get them involved as sort of equal owners, stakeholders in the process and, and participating and um, that they all have a voice and a say. And it's not the coaches making us do this. It's more they want to do it. So, you know, I also gauge it on teams. I don't want it to be a gimmick or something we do all the time. Um, but I'll often wait until I feel like they're, they're beginning to see that they could be a really good team. And then I'll pull it out. Mm -hmm. Almost want them to, to, you know, like, yeah, look, you had that win. And that's a top five win. And we really performed well there. And then a little while before that, we, we had a tough four, three loss to a team ranked a little lower, but we'll, so let's look at what we're capable, what we're capable of, et cetera. And then we'll do the writing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. No, that's brilliant. Um, so, so it sounds like, like you said, you, you do a lot of things on feel and, and obviously have a huge amount of experience as well. But, you know, when you start, say, recruiting players and you start thinking about, uh, you know, their games and, and, you know, how you're going to help them once they get to Vandy and then throughout their, their tenure at Vanderbilt, I mean, do you, do you have kind of a, a system for player development or is it very individual and, and, um, you know, can you, can you, talk the, us through a, a little bit your sure. kind of process for developing college tennis players? Um, I think first thing I try to make sure they see that I'm trying to get better too. And I'm mm. in it and I'm, you know, like, a, 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 I think it was between after the 2014 season, 
Um, and we had the wonderful run in 15, of course, but I, I started to, I did a really deep dive into Spanish tennis. I read the Chris Lewitt book. I read, you know, Pacho Alvarez's mm-hmm. El de Tenis. You know, I read as much of it as I could. And, um, I looked at YouTube and I looked at, I did a lot of reading about how come the Spanish, especially men are just, are so good. And what are they doing? And I taught myself a lot of the footwork drills and a lot of the principles and began to do it in the fall. It was totally new. Mm-hmm. It was, and I did it, you know, Hey, Hey, let me show you this, this, this footwork pattern. Let's the, here's the concept I just learned. And here's the, here's the, here's the heavy ball and how they think about, think about this. And the, you know, um, so they see, wow, you know, he, he spent his summer learning this. And anyway, they see that I'm invested in trying to improve myself, even at my advanced age. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see, so first thing I want them to see, I'm in this, I'm rolling up my sleeves too. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm in this with you. And then you look at, um, you look at what they're doing and you talk about a situation. Um, Nadal's favorite word or a word he uses often in press conferences is solution, mm. which is a really interesting way to think about a tennis problem, say, you know, like, so, you know, Marie Casares and Astro would often come out in the morning in 14 or 15. We did like an hour and 90 minute, just, just incredible sessions. And I go, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's work on what, you know, Marie would say, I have a really hard time when I run deep and wide to the forehand, knowing what to do with that ball. Mm-hmm. And so, we, and then I would go, well, what do you think? And I go, ask her what, if you do this, if you hit that ball to her, what would you not want her to do? And she'd say, well, this would, this would be a hard shot for me. So and the answer would often be, let's, let's go high and heavy up the line in which, which most players will then play cross court. So you're kind of off of the hook a little bit in terms of having to play. You can go from defense to neutral with one good shot, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And talk to them about it. And then it could be, okay, what's another one? Or they'd be playing a point and I go, okay, what would, what, what's a, what'd you feel there? That's another real interesting thing I've done more in the last um, 10 years or so. Asking players, what are you feeling almost emotionally? What do you feel emotionally when you go for that ball? Hmm. It's a weird way to think of it. But I'd go, they'd say, oh, I feel really, everything goes super fast and I kind of panic and I feel enormous pressure. And I go, okay. Let's do it again and see if you can feel what would be a different, how would you rather feel mm. calm that I have a purpose that I know what I'm doing and I'm going to hit a shot that, she, that that bothers her. All right. And then you go, what would that look like? So a lot of this is almost the Socratic method where you ask questions mm-hmm. and, you know, say, okay, well, what if you played that like uh, when you're running wide and you have to go to a one handed chip, what if you played that short into the service box cross court? And they had to move forward and hit up on the ball. Mm. And then we would just, we, we, we'd go, here's the drill. You know, Marie, you're going to pound it inside out. Astra, you're going to run and play a one-handed fight cross court. Mm-hmm. And then let's play the point out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very good. No, thanks for, for sharing that with the coaches. Um, and then you, you, you talked a little bit about this and, and, and kind of the, the, the writing process for your team and, and started in 2014 and imagining uh-huh. SEC title and NCAA title. And, and obviously a year later in 2015, that, that became a reality. But obviously at the beginning of the season, that team wasn't necessarily a favorite for the NCAA title. I think you took, took several losses early in the season. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, but so, so how did that team, continue to get better throughout the season and, and also believe that they were capable of beating the teams that, that just beat them and, and probably more talented if, if we're, yeah. if we're being fair and, and to go sure. on to win that yeah. NCAA title. Yeah. Um, so that's a really, really great point. Um, we talk a lot about improving through the year and not being afraid to take long. You know, it's not about, I've had teams some years that had really gaudy records, like they're 15 and two going into, you know, the middle of April or something. And, and you, you realize you're not that good <laughs> and, and they don't, they haven't faced what they're going to face. 
Mm. So the losses early, um, I, I just sort of changed my philosophy and just was like, that's okay. Let's learn, let's learn from this. So we were, uh, the four and four after losing the Stanford four, three, seven, five in the third in Palo Alto. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was a heartbreaker. And we had lost four, three the day before in LA to Southern Cal. And we had lost some four, you know, we, we, we'd lost, we were four and four with four, four, three losses. So, you know, I, I, I always try to think, what are the players feeling? And I basically said to them, you're the best four and four team in history. You guys are really good. <laughs> now let's, let's have, let's talk about what does it feel like to be the last one on when it's three all and they just opened up. Mm. So I feel like I'm letting everyone down. I go, okay. And then we just unpacked the whole situation and said, the, the courage it takes to be the last one on and to fight is significant. And it, it, it's to be praised, really. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Now, what did it feel like out there? I could barely breathe. My feet slowed down. I go, okay, good. Now, now let's get into specifics of what you need to do at that point in terms of how to play. Right? Mm-hmm. No, back to Nadal. What's the solution in that situation? You know, and first of all, we, we, we just go, we win and lose as a team. It's not the last person on. Um, there's no, no finger pointing or blaming. We're in this together. And we just caught out of that. Um, and there was kind of a magic where they actually, the team that year, unbeknownst to me, had a kind of, come to Jesus meeting in the locker room where, you know, I had three, 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 maybe four players who were so driven and worked so hard. And I had two or three who worked, but they were not burning the nut oil playing that much extra. Mm-hmm. And the, they had a little bit of a fight in a meeting. And it turned out that by communicating about it, you know, one of the kids, a really talented, great player, you know, so we never asked me to hit. And, the, and one of the kids who loved to play and played extra said, I would just think you'd say no. So, well, why don't you ask me? <laughs> they, began, they began to hit. So, um, and then that spread through the team where the, the relationships healed and there was a respect, you know, of, you know, the one who worked really hard began to see the other one as willing to work hard and a good person. Mm-hmm. And that rift was healed. So I'm really big on teams that achieve, they do it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you maybe create the, the, the climate and the atmosphere and you're supporting it and you're, you're working hard yourself. But if it, it, it is not coach driven, it's team driven. Mm-hmm. And so and that, that team really drove itself then is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, well, well, uh, again, coming back, you, you've had such a, such a, you know, um, you know, so many, so many seasons, so many matches under your belt. Um, you've yeah. been at three, three different colleges. Um, you know, what, what has changed, uh, for you as a college coach or, or say the college coaching industry over the last mm. 30 years or so? And, and kind of what, what changes do you anticipate, uh, coming down the line here in the coming years? Yeah. Interesting. Um, first of all, the number of really good quality coaches who know what they're doing and who work hard at it has gone up. Mm. Um, it's, there's some really smart, good developers. Uh, there are a lot. Um, there's some, so some real positive developments in that way. Uh, I think there are maybe not as many great players, but there are a lot of good players. Mm. It's kind of leveled out in a way. Um, on the negative side, I fear that that coaching in some instances, this will sound like I'm contradicting myself, but some coaches almost, it almost looks like a pro team with a salary cap and you're, you're, you're almost managing and moving around. You know, you're managing, mm-hmm. um, the grad transfer person and, and you're bringing people in for the one and done phenomenon, which, which um, is stunning to me that, that, you know, people recruits will ask me that. And I say, we, we won't do that 
hey, listen, if you're a sophomore and you're winning the NCAAs and doing great and you need to turn pro, Vanderbilt will back you up if you want to come back, but I can't promise that on the front end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there have been some instances where a kid comes in and plays number six and turns pro and the school's on the hook to pay for them when they come back doesn't seem like a smart, sustainable business model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I wonder with the COVID-19 crisis, if we get, we reel it back in a little bit, it becomes a little more of an emphasis on the college game. Um, I don't, I, I'm a little bit dismayed seeing the prolification where everybody's trying to play pro tournaments in the fall. You know, and you look at, say, two men, let's look at Steve Johnson and his they mm-hmm. played college tennis. They played for four years. They were great players, and they developed in a bunch of ways playing college tennis and going to college. Mm-hmm. They were not out playing pro all fall. Um, on the women's side, I don't think Daniel Collins played, played. I think she played college tennis and worked really hard at it at UVA. Right. Astra, Astra played 125. Uh, we hosted here over Thanksgiving, so they didn't miss any school. And um, I think she played two tournaments her final semester and was scheduled to play more and came to me and said, I just want to play the college matches. I don't want to go play the tour right now. Um, I don't like that trend. I think that I think our college game is phenomenal. And I think if, if a player is really honest and taking responsibility for her game or his game, there's a lot you can do in college that's that's pretty good. And then play a full summer pro if you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's no no short of examples out there for sure. Um yeah. and and so what what skills do you think future generations of coaches should be learning now to make them more effective in their roles moving forward? Oh, uh That's a good question. Um I think the people who, who enjoy their careers and enjoy the coaching and the developing of players. Um, the relationships are the, are the gold. You know, no one's paid. There are some coaches are paid quite well, but by and large, it's, um, it, you know, you're not, you know, buying a yacht and sailing the Caribbean mm-hmm. in the office. Um, but really the gold is, is being in this great game. Uh, you know, I pinch myself. I come to work in shorts and I hit tennis balls. You know, <laughs> it, it's, I'm not in the coal mine. I mean, it's, it's, we're fortunate to have these, these jobs. I think developing your compass, your moral compass, your ethical compass, because, you know, there's so many challenging things. Uh, you can, you know, somebody can do an improper lineup. They could stack. Somebody can... Um, you can cheat and recruit. There's all these temptations to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's like a short term, really attractive fix. Um, that if it looks good, it's like a deal with the devil. It looks good, but you might get in some trouble. By the same token, if you're so principled and, and, and above everything, <laughs> you're not being practical and you, you know, you, you, I'm never, I'm not saying anything, do ever do anything unethical, but mm-hmm. you have to make, uh, practical, choices. And sometimes in recruiting, you know, we'll write a kid off um, and not maybe understand their behavior might be for a different reason. An example is Aliki Ubanos, um, you know, really competitive, really hard on herself. And she kind of sauntered around the court like she didn't care. Mm. And it was actually the opposite. She cared so much. And um, I've learned to not buy into the narrative of, of, of what a player looks like and maybe try to uh, understand who they are. Try to have a lot of empathy for, you know, young people trying to play this game and, and um, really just developing, developing that. And then I think a, a person centered coaching that's more about developing the person and the player and not what I call transactional coaching, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, I'm going to give you a scholarship and you're going to perform, you know, like a little circus animal and win matches. It's more, uh, you, you, what, what sort of, what's it all about? You know, you just kind of have a little more of a, of a 
compass in that way. Yeah. So, so how would you then encourage coaches to, let's say, a young coach out there who's just getting started in the career? Maybe they haven't had great examples of, of, you know, what what highly ethical, principled coaching uh, looks like. How how could they start thinking or or developing uh, their own principles and and how they want to, you know, how they want to be as a coach? Yeah, that's a good. You know, I think being aware of who coached you. And was it good? Because you're going to be influenced by that. Mm-hmm. Just as if you're a parent, your, your default is to go back to the way you were parented. And you can look at the way you were parented and say, you know, that was really good and that wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try with my own children to improve upon that. My parents did great, but maybe it was a different era. And, you know, but the same thing with coaching. You look at it and go, um, you know, wow, that, that my coach was really good in this way, but. I think he, he or she could have improved in this way. And you, so you're aware of your own history with coaching mm-hmm. and you're aware that that's going to come out unless you consciously study and learn from masters. Like uh, I, I study coaches all over Greg Popovich. I love him. I like hearing what Brad Stevens does. I love hearing what um, uncle Tony you know, does what mm-hmm. uh, Gunter Resnick does on the tour. Um, you know, I love hearing what, you know, what people do that works. Um, and there are different models. I mean, I think uncle Tony was really firm with, with Rafa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bresnik was with team. And then you hear another coach who was a little more, um, almost like a, like a great psychotherapist with a player, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, so I, I think just just really kind of know thyself, but also constantly thinking of how can I get a little better, and um, you know, reading about a really good, um, maybe a good business leader or mm-hmm. or a military. Sometimes military leaders, like I read uh, Jocko Willink stuff, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's real. You know, it's, it's incredibly. He's this big, you yeah. know, ripped guy with a shaved head, and he's, but he's actually. <laughs> So much of good military leadership is super humility, uh, soft skills, like, you know, communicating, taking responsibility. I think what I have tried to do is model and in, in model what I want my players to be like. Mm-hmm. I have to live up to that, that credo, too. I, if I want them to work hard, I have to work hard. If I want them to be fair and good sports, I have to do that. Right. And, and, and just throughout, if, 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 if I treat hotel people respectfully, they'll see that that's important. They, they're watching you. It's, it's very similar to parents. You know, they're watching everything you do. Do you mm-hmm. tip well? Do you hold the door open for people? You know, you, do you, that kind of stuff. You get right. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, very good. So I've started a, a, a rapid fire now with our, with our coaches on, on the podcast. So, uh, I'm going to throw, throw some different questions at you here, but, uh, take your time yeah. answering them. So is there a, a major book or, or several books that, that have made a, a major impact on you as a coach? Gosh, books. Um, I read a book called play to win the check way. And it was the Slovakian, uh, it was like my Bible when I first started coaching and it was, you know, technique, it was their physical training and it was really kind of, kind of cool. Um, I read a lot of stuff in Spanish, Spanish stuff. I, I'm one of these people who reads, um, I love reading tennis books. I, I Tilden's match play and the spin of the ball. Mm. Um, Vic Braden, tennis for the future, John McPhee's levels of the game, Wertheim's uh, book on the Rafa fed match. So, you know, I, 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 I read about tennis and if I get an idea, I'm always in a game. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and what's interesting is I reread that a year or two ago. It holds up. That's from the 1970s. And it, it holds up really, <laughs> yeah. really well. So does children's book. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'll have players read the first chapters called ball as separate entity. Mm-hmm. And it was like earth shattering to me. Huh? That's a way to look at, think about tennis. Who, 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 whoever handles the ball better wins the match. So it sounds really simple, but the way he puts it is it's really something. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Okay, very good. Um, do you have a favorite drill? Yes, uh, there's a drill we, we there's a game we play called the McEnroe game, okay. and it's kind of old school. Apparently, McEnroe's never lost in either position. We play on a half court with the double valley, one up, one back, and the, the player at the back, well, both players use a continental grip, hmm. and the player at the net cannot let the ball bounce. So a lob can't you can't let a lob, a lob get behind you, and if they dink at your feet, you can't. You got to get it in the air, and I've amended that to where you can play. A, I count a half volley mm-hmm. as the same thing, so you don't rush. You play the appropriate shot in the half volley. The player at the baseline in today's world, my players when they start out doing it are not very good at it. They're terrible at it <laughs> because they don't understand uh, space in a way. So, mm-hmm. like if I'm playing you, I feed you a ball at the net, you volley. Now I have a choice: I dink it low, or I lob you. And the lob is an old school continental grip, underspin or flat lob. And you go back and hit the overhead. And we, you know, I teach them when the person's hitting the overhead, you have to split and have your weight forward. Mm-hmm. And then when they hit the overhead, you, you can either lob again or you dink it at their feet. So when it's played well, it's like the points are long competitive, intense, and it teaches a whole ton of, of, of skills that, that apply. It helps doubles. Right. Um, but again, this was a solution game. Like Marie Casares, when people would, would hit to her backhand and, and she had to go to the one-handed chip, she would chip firmly and it would go through chest high and the player would knock off a volley. Mm-hmm. So this drill teaches you to understand the other players coming back in and you've got to get that ball down at the feet which gives you time, which makes them hit up. You go from defense to potentially offense. Mm-hmm. I love and, and so do you play, is it, is it like if you and I are playing, um, whoever wins the point is at the net or do you play, you know, I, I'm at the net up to seven and then you're up to net for seven yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Okay. You, you play the game and then I love competitive games, you know, we'll, we'll do up the river, down the river. So if you win, you go mm-hmm. to the west you lose, you go east and, um, and they're competitive. So at first they didn't like, they were like, why are we doing this? This is, this is kind of weird. I said, yeah, you know, and let's just try it a little bit. It's, it's learning. I'm real big on if you're learning new things in tennis, it's never a bad thing, Mm. you know? And so a lot of times like, someone will hit a short volley and you're running up and you got to play with your two hand or you got to play with one hand. Well, if you chip that through the court, they're just going to knock off the volley. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to understand that you could get that at the feet, you've turned the tables on the opponent. They have to hit up to you and you win the point. And you, but kids are not taught that very often right. at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then is there one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, whether that's in coaching or in life? Gosh, uh, I don't know. Um, sure, I feel like I'm constantly <laughs> trying to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's okay. It's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you can think about that and come cool. back to me on that. Okay, I'll yeah. try to come back. Yeah. Do you have uh, Do you have a favorite quote? I have a bunch of them. That's actually something I love doing with players. And uh, I have a player, Ashley Antal, who played number six on that championship team mm-hmm. in 15. She remembers everyone. So <laughs> there's one I like. Uh, I think it's George Santayana, who was a philosopher. Be first a good animal. And basically that means get your sleep, eat right, be fit. Be, mm. Make sure you're a good animal. <laughs> like that's the first thing you want to do. And like, you know, take care of yourself as a, as a being, as physical being. Mm. Um, I like a Henry James quote, try to be someone on whom nothing is lost. Mm. Kind of an awkward statement. What it means is pay attention, pay attention to what's going on in the match. Mm. Nothing gets by you. And what tends to get, the reason things get by us is when we're emotionally clouded. Mm-hmm. And if you can, yeah, that, that's actually back to the question. What have I learned? I think I did not know how much my players were seeing me 
in a match and how much, you know, like if I look stressed out and, and I'm running around and I'm nervous that that was really bad for them. Mm. And I, I consciously changed that. A friend of mine in that championship match against UCLA said, you look like you were in line at Starbucks to get a coffee. <laughs> and, I, and I genuinely felt really chilled out. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but I, I had, if you think about tennis coaching, this is interesting. We can't call a timeout. We can't substitute. So what are we in control of? Our body language and what we're, the way we're relating to a player. Those are our tools. And, and prior to that, before you even get to the match, the relationship you've built with the player. Mm-hmm. Those are our, those are our tools. Right. You know, and yeah. I mean, you've had, back when, you know, I mean, when you're coaching, everyone knows a kid maybe you don't connect with. Mm-hmm. And for, for whatever reason, you haven't, that relationship hasn't been built, built as well as it could have been. And it's four all in the third, and you realize you 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 don't have a leg to stand on with this kid, and it's a bad feeling. Mm. Yeah. Similarly, you, you know, you 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 love a kid, and you go, you know, I don't care whether you win or lose here. I just love this kid, and we we <laughs> it's good. And I was talking to an umpire one time, and he said there was a famous men's match, and one coach came out and was so stressed out with the player. And the other coach came out and just kind of cracked a joke and said, you know, hey, you've worked really hard. Win or lose, just, you know, have some fire and go after it or something calming. And you can tell who won. Um, and I, I, I would just hear stories like that. And I, I think when I was younger, I was, um, I was so stressed out. And so I also thought I was in charge. And, and mm-hmm. I think as I've gotten older, Jeff Moore helped me a lot with this, you know, You've done the work. He, his phrase is "let the horses run." I would just, when we got a, you know, when we've been in good runs for championships, I, I back off and let the horses run. Mm. Awesome. I've got one one last question for you, Jeff. What what is one sure. lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they leave Vanderbilt? Um, I. I am really happy when they continue to love tennis. Um, and I realize that I hope that their experience here helped further that. Mm. It's sad to me when you see college tennis players and you know that as soon as they get home from that last plane ride, they're never going to touch a racket because they, because it's been miserable. Mm. And, um, you know, love of the game, uh, love of the, the teammates, you know, you know this. When you get together with former players, you're not talking about matches as much. <laughs> right. It's more some really funny series of things that happen, and everybody just laughs. It's it's one of the joys of the job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that and 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 just uh, the whole bunch of people around you, from trainers to administrators to strength coaches were there for you and and really honored you pay you know kind of pay it forward when it's your turn mm. very good well jeff i think that that wraps it up that was uh very informative thank you for being so open and, and sharing so much yeah. of, of your process and your background i think coaches are going to get get a lot out of this so uh really appreciate your time today thank you dave thanks for asking me of course <laughs>